when we were reading through this parasha, I was gripped. It is an enthralling parasha. There's a lot of action. It spans a considerable amount of time. And there's some fascinating things that we can learn about our God, our Elohim, about us as his people, and also about the enemy. So I decided to entitle the teaching that I'm going to give today, Moshe Incompetent and Israelis Invictus versus the Dark World Ruler. And this is actually only part one. Part two of this will be next week. But, uh, so we're just, we're just going to jump in and look at some things. The first thing we're going to uh, draw a parallel between is the, the Parsha and the Mark passage. This is interesting because the book of Genesis begins with Bereshit, the Hebrew word for beginning. And the book of Mark opens with the same thing, the beginning of, which is Reshit in Hebrew. And it's interesting that Genesis opens with the beginning, the Genesis, and it ends with the disciples of Yeshua being sent out into all the nations as it were, into exile. The gospel goes into exile into the whole world, knowing that there will be a time when he will regather all of his people back to the homeland. Similarly, in the ending of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel are left out in exile in Egypt. But the story doesn't end there. There is a time when God will visit his people and he will bring them back. And that's also happening in our generation. God is visiting his people. He is awakening our hearts. He's teaching us critical strategies like what you pointed out, John, that Jerusalem and Beit El are key strategic areas spiritually. And it's why the enemy is uh, so focused on controlling those areas. So uh, there's, there's a real parallel there. And uh, we wanna look, I want to look at another couple of parallels between the people of Israel in Egypt and us as disciples of the Master in the nations for the last couple thousand years. This is going to be a very, very brief overview of church history, actually. And I have a couple of things here to do that. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 7 of the book of Exodus, Shemot. It gives an analysis of the status of the people of Israel and uh, what, what became of them. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, They were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty. And the result, the land was filled with them. And I want to parse each of these Hebrew words out because they're very robust and powerful words in Hebrew. And they're a picture not only of the people of Israel in Egypt, but they're a picture of you. They're a picture of us as a congregation here in exile. And uh, it's a picture of the life of, of Messiah that is pulsing in our DNA and what it, what it drives us to do. The first word is fruitful. The Hebrew word there connotes reproducing themselves. We have been sent with a mission into all the nations to reproduce ourselves as disciples. Next word. They increased greatly. The Hebrew root there is sharat, and it means they swarmed and they teemed like insects. And this is interesting because the Chinese believers today have a mission that they are obsessed with in a very healthy sense. It's called the... Uh, it's, it's uh, the, the vision to take the good news all the way back from China, through the 1040 window, through the strongholds of Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, back to Israel. There, there's a book about it, and there are actually a couple books about it. Um, it's just called the Back to, is it called Back to Jerusalem? It's called the Back to Jerusalem vision. And I highly recommend reading about it. But one of the strategies they have is that they're to be like insects, like ants and grasshoppers 
armies of ants and grasshoppers that teem over the land, that swarm. And this is a picture in the Torah of that strategy that's built into our spiritual DNA. Next word. Is they multiplied. They grew exponentially on a numerical scale. They didn't just add, they multiplied. Some basic math here for us. And finally, it says they became exceedingly, literally in the Hebrew it says they became very, very mighty. The word there for mighty is atzam, and it has to do with bone, and it has to do with claws and fangs, or teeth. And these are a couple of the main meanings that you can get from this word. It means that Israel and Egypt developed an extremely strong core. And tell me if this isn't a picture of the early Messianic community that Yeshua sent out into the nations. They developed an extremely strong core. They built a solid infrastructure. They became a dangerous organism not easily defeated. And they became a self-propagating entity independent of external support. This was true of the early Yeshua movement as they went out into the nations. They were a force to be reckoned with. It didn't look like they had any uh, independent support aside from the power of the Holy Spirit moving them forward. And Yeshua in the heavenlies giving them strategy and uh, going forth at their head. And what was the result of all of these things? In a couple of verses later, in verse 12, it says, the more the people of Israel were afflicted, the more they multiplied, there's multiplied again, which is which is uh, growing exponentially on a numerical scale, and the more they spread out. Now we talked about this Hebrew word for spreading out a couple weeks ago also. It was the name of Judah's son Perez, Perez. The more they were persecuted, the more they paratzed, the more they broke out, the more they expanded. Was this also true of the early Yeshua movement? Yes, it was. The more the Romans cracked down on them, the more the Judean leadership persecuted them, the more they what? They scattered abroad. The more they broke out and expanded, and the greater their dedication. So I wanted to point that out, because the blessing that the people of Israel experienced in Egypt is the blessing that is upon us as disciples of Yeshua the Messiah today. And that, that power that was pulsing in their DNA as a result of that blessing is the same spiritual life that pulses in our spiritual DNA as a movement, as a Messianic community here in Prince Albert. And I just, I just want to pray for that right now. Father, I thank you for the life that pulses in our spirits. And Father, we release that life right now. We pray that it would break out, Father. We pray that the life of Messiah would break out in our congregation and in the body of Messiah across this city and our province and country also, Father. That we might be a, an example, Father, of what the people of Israel were in Egypt. People who broke out in your power, Father. People who multiplied greatly. People who uh, are reproducing ourselves as disciples, Father. And we thank you that you are just releasing that right now in Yeshua's name, Abba. Praise your name. So uh, what was the result of this? In chapter 1, verse 7, it says that the result of this was the land was filled with them. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word there for land is the same as the earth. What did Yeshua say? Go into all the nations. Go fill the earth. And here we are in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, <laughs> doing just that. Well, there's another parallel. It's uh, also pointed out in verse 12 how it says, the more they afflicted and persecuted them, the more they broke out and expanded. And I just want to refer you to a couple of great books about persecution. 
that have really been an eye-opener for me, have galvanized me to a much serious devotion in my faith, and that you might enjoy reading. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a classic. It talks about the, the major ten waves of persecution that were unleashed on the early believers in the first three or four centuries. Uh, Martyr's Mirror is another classic, especially of Anabaptists in the 15 and 1600s, many of whom laid down their lives for the testimony of the gospel and to obey the Master's command to be immersed in his name. Uh, the Heavenly Man. Has any of you read that? It's the story of Brother Yoon. If you haven't read The Heavenly Man, the story of Brother Yoon, you have to read it. He is one of the greatest leaders of the Chinese house church movement today, and he is also one of the major minds behind the Back to Jerusalem vision. Phenomenal book. Um, another one is Through the Fire Without Burning, the story of a Romanian brother named Dimitru Dudeman. And it is just a story of so many miracles and so much strategy, it, it'll blow your mind. I highly recommend that. Also, anything by the voice of the martyrs is excellent, and uh, literature by their founder, Richard Wormbrand, who happened to be a Messianic Jew. So those are a couple books. Uh, we'll be posting this on the net. So if you didn't get all these, that's okay. You can go check it out and, and look into some of those. Okay, we're going to talk strategy for a minute. This is an interesting parsha because the dark world ruler, the spirit behind Egypt as a world superpower, he kind of showed himself a little too much. I think he was getting nervous. Maybe he was about to be overthrown or something. And we're going we're gonna to learn a couple things about him right now. In chapter 1, verse 10 of the book of Exodus, we learn what all of this affliction was about. Why did Egypt crack down so hard on Israel? Because Pharaoh said, these guys might end up saying, come, let's deal, uh, let's, let's, uh, they might multiply. And in the event of a war, they'll join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us. And what will the end result be? They will go up from the land. Pharaoh was terrified that Israel might make Aliyah, that Israel might go up, literally, from Egypt back to the land of Israel. That was the fear of the dark world ruler. Could it be that that is also something that he's terrified of today? Yes. yes. And it's actually kind of cool that that was the subject of our Lama talk because I didn't consciously plan that. Number two, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the verse that Wayne fin ended on. Yahweh says, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. The Hebrew word there is chag. Can we all say chag? I'm going to show you the word picture for a chag. It's this. It's to spin around in dancing and with, uh, with great joy. It's the word for dancing and celebrating. And so uh, we translate that as festival. It's often translated as feast, but that's not a good translation. It has nothing to do with eating. Uh, some of the hogs, the festivals are Passover, first fruits, weeks, the day of trumpets, Sukkot. These are all hogs. Could that be the roots of the dervish act? No, that would be something different in another religion. Yeah. But here's the thing. Who wants us to meet him in the wilderness, to come out of the system and to celebrate these festivals? Yahweh does who is terrified at the prospect of our getting free and doing that? The dark world ruler, the enemy, that is correct. He doesn't want you to celebrate God's festivals. Satan does not want you to get in touch with God's calendar or God's holy days. Why? Because when you get in touch with the Creator and His ways, you get free. You end up 
escaping from the enemy's kingdom. And you become a dangerous force for the king. So you may not be aware of this, because it's just fun and we enjoy it and it comes naturally, but things like celebrating and dance on Shabbat, simply stopping everything and resting on Shabbat and spending time as a family and, and going deep in the Word, these are potent spiritual weapons in our arsenal against the evil one. He hates it when we do stuff like that. Even just getting together for Kiddush and Oneg after like we do. This is spiritual warfare. Biblical spiritual warfare. Yeah, yeah that's right. Alignment, that's correct. We're aligning ourselves with a specific spirit, the spirit who created the universe. So uh, chapter 5, verse 5 also is another uh, number 3 in the dark world ruler strategies. It says, Pharaoh says, look, the people of this, the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors, cease from their burdens. So he wants to get us overburdened with labor. And the Father wants to set you free and take away your burdens. And that is so simple, but I think that is one of the greatest tactics of the enemy today to make us unproductive for the kingdom, is just to get us to overwork ourselves, to, uh, to, get, to get under burdens. When we're under a burden or when we're overworking, we often lose touch with Abba and we become less productive for his kingdom. And that, that for me is how Shabbat is the picture of the gospel. It is a picture of freedom. <laughs> I love that. Okay, and finally, number four, infanticide, which is something we read about in this parish, the murder of babies, i.e. abortion, is one of the dark world ruler's last-ditch efforts to maintain power before he's dramatically overthrown and permanently defeated. That is what we learn. When Satan know that, knows that he's on his way out and the time's almost come, one of his last-ditch tactics will be infanticide, the murder of babies. And the fact that it's happening today tells us that Satan is, time has just about come. So take heart, saints, and keep fighting. So let's, uh, let's look at what this parsha tells us about our God. <laughs> like we already said, he is the one who is calling us out into the wilderness to meet with him, to celebrate and dance with him, to re be refreshed in his presence and to rest. Uh, chapter 22, verse 23. I mean, sorry, chapter 2, verse 23. This is another one that, uh, this is one that has really touched me on a personal level because this is something that I sometimes wrestle with in my image of God that sometimes isn't correct. And I wanted to share it because it's really meaningful. Chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about our God. And it talks about how he is a God who is fully engaged with us as a people. He is a Father who is fully involved in our lives. I love the verbs in here. It says that God heard, God remembered. The, the people of Israel, their prayer did come to him. God saw and God took notice. So we have an Elohim who sees us, who hears us, who remembers what he has spoken to us in the past and the promises that he has made to the, the forefathers in the faith. And he is, a, he is an Elohim who acts on our behalf because we remember that's also what remembered means. And uh, moving on to chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I have surely seen... He didn't just see, he surely saw the affliction of my people in Egypt and I have given heed to their cry. I have known their sufferings, their pain. 
So he is someone who knows the Sintamili, who, who knows their sufferings. And uh, interestingly enough, do you know which country has the highest abortion rate per capita in the world today? It's Israel. Mm -hmm. But that's encouraging too, because it tells us there's a generation who, that's rising in Israel that is going to shake the enemy's kingdom there. So, yes. Let's, let's take a look now at Moshe Incompetent. <laughs> that's just what we're going to title him here. Um, something that you will discover, I, okay, if you're young and you're growing up, you'll discover, I'm sure many of you have already discovered, is that there will always be critics, there will always be people there to point out your faults, your inconsistencies, your deficiencies, the reasons why you can't do this or you can't do that. They'll always be there. They've always been there and they always will be. And Moses had his share of those also. In fact, he was one of his own greatest critics. And when he went back to the people in Egypt, he also had a, 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 another series of critics. I, I want to take a look at uh, Moshe and his failings in this parasha because I find it so encouraging. <laughs> I find it so encouraging that Moshe was so human. Um, in chapter, let's look at uh, six, six examples in this parasha. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, is where Moshe resorts to violence. He becomes a murderer. And you could even say that we talked about the two Yeshuas. One was Yeshua Baraba, Barabbas. And then there was Yeshua, the true son of the father. And Yeshua Baraba was a political zealot. He was an insurrectionist who depended on physical violence and murder to try and accomplish kingdom goals, really. And it was wrong. And we talked about how there are always these two Yeshuas that we can choose. Moses had two Yeshuas to choose from. And at the beginning, he chose the wrong one. And I'm sure it was all part of the plan, but it, he did spend 40 years in the wilderness as a result of that. Number two, chapter 3, verses 11 to chapter 4, verse 14, is basically this long dialogue between Moshe and the Almighty where Moshe keeps throwing objections up about why he is the wrong man for the job. He's negative. He's pessimistic. He's a worst-case scenario generator. He's unbelieving, and he's reluctant to obey to the point of actually making the Holy One mad. It says, the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. You do not want to get to the point where you make the anger of the Almighty burn against you. But that was Moshe. That was, that was his mindset by then. Uh, number three in chapter four, verse 10, Moshe was a poor public speaker. Number four in chapter four, verses 24 to 26, Moshe was sloppy in his observance of God's commandments. He didn't even bother to circumcise his firstborn son and bring him into the covenant of Abraham. Number five, in at the end of this parsha, Moshe, get, Moshe gets discouraged at the first sign of failure, uh, the first sign of resistance, and he doubts his mission. That's almost where the parsha ends, but then he always says, Moshe, now you're going to see what I can do, essentially. Number six, and this is more one for the Jewish world, the Messianic Jewish world also, Moshe, even though he was ethnically Jewish, he was ethnically a Hebrew, he wasn't raised that way. He was raised in a Gentile society, and he was raised in, as an Egyptian. Number, also along with that, Moshe may have not had the best grasp of Hebrew. His Hebrew was probably much more fluent in Egyptian than Hebrew. His Hebrew, he might have stumbled a lot. Maybe he didn't have a very great vocabulary. That could have been one reason that he was so reluctant to go to the people of Israel. Isn't that encouraging? 
Moses was probably one of those guys who never, he, he belonged to the people of God, but he may have never really looked like he belonged. And actually, that's a parallel that really plays out in this Parsha. The Pharisees were critical of Yeshua's choice of disciples. And in response, he gave the whole uh, analogy of the old wineskins and the new wineskins. You know, the, uh, the old cloth and the new cloth and sewing a, sewing a patch on them. But the point of that wasn't saying, out oh, with Judaism and with Christianity, Judaism bad, Christianity good. That's often what's anachronistically read into that analogy. But if you look at the context of it, he was just defending his choice of disciples. He was saying, I'm taking a fresh group of disciples to teach them the fresh things of the kingdom, essentially. So you can see that um, playing out in the, the parsha also. I want to read you a quote from uh, a friend of mine on Facebook, Brandon Shepard. I saw it on his, uh, his quotes page, and I just love this quote. I, I just stumbled on it this last week. I think it was like, uh, leading me or something. And uh, just read this. It's not like, just read this kind of and get the uh, general feel, okay? The next time you feel like God can't use you, remember this. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Moses had a stuttering problem, Gideon was afraid, Samson had long hair and was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah and Timothy were too young, David had an affair and was a murderer, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, Jonah ran from God, Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, Peter denied Christ, the disciples fell asleep while praying, Martha worried about everything, Mary Magdalene was, well you know, the Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. <laughs> and not that those are good things, right? We want to avoid many of those things. But it is so encouraging that the Father comes to people where they're at. If they have hearts that say, Hineni, I'm available. And he'll take them on from there. He'll take us on from there. So, and I just, you, you go through that list and you think, you know, those are so many of the things that people will often try and shoot people, other people down over or say, you can't do that because of this in your life or this in your past or whatever. Apparently, that's not the way the Father sees us. It's not how he sees you. I want to give you a couple of messianic insights from this parasha here. Um, Moses was rejected at his first coming, but he was broadly accepted by the people of Israel at his second coming. And it's a common saying in Judaism that as it was with Moses, the first redeemer, the prototypical redeemer, so it will be with the ultimate redeemer, the Messiah. Number two, Moses' healing of leprosy was a sign that he had come as God's anointed. Remember the two signs? Put your hand in and pull it out and it's leprous. What's the second sign? Put your hand in and pull it out again and it will be healed. The healing of leprosy was a sign that he was sent by God. And Yeshua healed quite a few lepers, some smashing cases of that. Um, also, this is interesting. Yahweh said about that sign specifically, if they don't believe the first sign, they will believe the second. Could that also be a picture of Yeshua in his first coming and the future return of the king and his probably much more widespread acceptance? by the people of Israel. Also, in chapter 4, verse 22, Yahweh says to Pharaoh, and these are fighting words, he said, Israel's my firstborn son, so let him go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Now where I come from, them's fighting words. But it's interesting that he calls Israel what? His firstborn son. Because who is the father's firstborn son? Yeshua, that's correct. 
Therefore, Israel is a title of the Messiah. It's one of his messianic titles. And it makes sense, too, because as our high priest, he is, his life is so bound up in our lives as the people of Israel. He represents Israel before the Father. Therefore, it's a messianic title. That's what I get out of that. Okay, a couple quick Hebrew flashes and we're done. Um, I, I, after, after studying different birth techniques and methods before we had Tirza, um, Genevieve and I opted for a more natural birth in a home setting that was midwife assisted um, so that it would be safe and everything. And there's an interesting little insight about this in chapter 1. The midwives say that the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. It says, uh, different translations have it in different ways. It says they're lively, they're vigorous, they give birth before the midwife even gets there. But the Hebrew word there is chayot. Can everybody say chayot? And it's also the word for wild animals, like natural animals that live in nature. And it could just simply be saying that the Hebrews have birth methods that are natural, as compared to maybe the Egyptians who had birth methods that were maybe a little less natural. It's an interesting Hebrew insight. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, they come to the mountain of Sinai, and there's a synonym for Sinai. What's the other name for it? Horeb. In Hebrew, it's Chorev. Can we all say Chorev? Does anyone know what Chorev means? It means extremely dry or parched. So if there are ever times in our lives when maybe we're extremely dry or parched, maybe it's the result of our own stupidness or sin, but maybe he takes us through times like that where he brings us out into the wilderness so he can impart his word to us and give us a new mission, etc. We'll be watching for that. That's what Horeb means. So just keep that, file that away in your mind. And uh, finally, in chapter 4, verse 31, what was the people of Israel's response to Moses and Aaron coming to rescue them? It says they bowed low and they worshipped. And I love the Hebrew word for that. It's, it's uh, Yishtachavu. Can we all say Yishtachavu? But it, I'll show you what it literally means. The root of it is shach. Can we all say shach? And to shach means to get down low. It's like you get down like this, and you just can get down as low as you can. But ishtachavu is actually a compound word. It doesn't just mean that you, you, uh, you're kind of getting low. It means you get yourself down low, like really intentionally. It's like um, shin chet. Shin chet. So uh, that's, a, that's an awesome picture of worship. And I, I kind of felt that today. Like when we were worshiping, when Yahweh comes and He begins to reveal Himself, He's so great, you just kind of want to, it's almost like the energy drains out of your body. You just want to get down low and just let Him be His glorious self. That's, that's my uh, natural response anyhow. Shach. Yeah, shach. S-H-A-C-H, that's correct. Okay, and uh, I just want to say one thing about the passage from Mark. It says that there were some stages here in the Messiah's coming to the people of Israel. He didn't just show up on the scene. It says that before he came, Yochanan, John came to prepare the people for him. And Yochanan's message was, the kingdom is at hand. In other words, the king is coming shortly. So repent. Turn, turn around and turn to God. And of course, in the Hebrew context, it also means align yourself with God's word, the Torah. 
And if, you know, if there's stuff in the Torah that you're not doing, start doing it. If there's stuff in the Torah that it says, don't do and you're doing that stuff, stop. That's the original connotation of repent in Hebrew. Shuv is the Hebrew. And uh, I really believe that this movement, the Messianic movement, is essentially thus far a John the Baptist type movement. It is the Father saying, these are things in your life, in your theology, in your worldview, maybe in your eschatology or Israelology that are not right, so stop. And these are the things that I'm calling you to. Start. It's almost like you get a red light on some stuff and you get a green light on other stuff. And why is he doing this with us? Because he wants to come and reveal himself gloriously before we can experience the infusion of his glory, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and he's going to clean us up. He's going to get us doing the stuff he wants us doing so that when the power comes, we'll be on the right track and we'll grow in the right way. And uh, that's why I believe that so far the Messianic movement is predominantly a Yochanan the Immerser, a John the Baptist movement. What encourages me about that is that this isn't the end. This is only the beginning. This is preparing us as the body of Messiah around the world for the return of our bridegroom, the King of the Jews. So let's just continue following him passionately and uh, listening to his voice and, uh, and being agents to help prepare the bride also. Oh. Isn't God's word thrilling? I love how we're reading accounts that are like three and a half millennia old, but the dynamics in them are still so active in our lives today. They are so applicable. <laughs> Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.